0: Good morning, please be seated. In the case of John Aquino et al. against Ernst & Young, Inc., in its capacity as court-appointed monitor of Bonfield Construction Company Limited and KSV Kaufman, Inc., in its capacity as trustee in bankruptcy of 103.3803 Ontario, Inc., and 108.7507 Ontario, Limited, and between Lawrence Scott et al., against Doyle Salewski, Inc., in its capacity as trustee in bankruptcy of Golden Oaks Enterprises, Inc., For the appellant, John Aquino et al., Terry Corsianos, and George Corsianos, and Jacob Lee. For the respondent, KSV Kaufman Inc., in its capacity as trustee in bankruptcy of 103.3803 Ontario Inc., and 108.7507 Ontario Limited, Jeremy Opalski, and Alex Bogak for the respondent Ernst and Young Inc in its capacity as court appointed monitor of Bonfield Construction Company Limited Alan Mursky and Stephen Taylor for the appellants Lauren Scott et al shall Daou. for the respondents Doyle Seliski Inc in its capacity as trustee in bankruptcy of Golden Oaks Enterprises, Inc., R.V.G. Chetan, Doug Bourassa, and Laura Colton. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Donna Salmon, and Jennifer Boychuk. For the intervener, Insolvency Institute of Canada, Natasha McParland, Uh, Shanakia A. Seti, Rui Gao, and J. Henry Macom. Please be advised that uh, Justice uh, Martin is part of the panel, but is uh, on the uh, visio screen this morning. Uh, Mr. Porcianus.
1: good morning, Justices. I would like to start off where the Court of Appeal left off in regards to its corporate attribution doctrine analysis. So if you could please turn to tab one of our condensed book, where Justice Lowers, on behalf of the Court of Appeal, reframed the corporate attribution test as follows. Quote, in light of these considerations, I would reframe the test for imputing the intent of a directing mind to a corporation in the bankruptcy context this way. The underlying question here is who should bear responsibility for the fraudulent acts of a company's directing mind that are done within the scope of his or her authority, the fraudsters or the creditors? Permitting the fraudsters to get a benefit at the expense of creditors would be perverse. So there are three points I would like to make in regards to the foregoing passages. Point number one, contrary to the teachings of this court in the Christine de case, wherein the court stated that as a threshold matter, minimal criteria must always be met prior to corporate attribution being implemented. The Court of Appeal carved out of the body of civil law, bankruptcy law, wherein these minimal criteria no longer had to be met. Point number two, unless one lives in a parallel universe where up is down, black is white, and vice versa.
2: Which reminds me of what Jonathan Swift said, that lawyers are those who argue black is white or white is black according as they are paid. So you are going to tell us which is black and which is white.
1: Well, (laughs) the, the point is this. I mean, so fraudsters, so it's axiomatic if there's a contest between a fraudster and a creditor. It's axiomatic the, that the creditors are going to prevail. So, the point here, uh, Justice Roe, is this that it really is in the test what they formulated here. On a de facto basis, if not a de jure basis, what they've done, the Court of Appeal, is they've ousted the corporate attribution doctrine as formulated by this court in Canadian Dredge and its progeny. And they've replaced it with a concept presuming that of. Respond yet superior And then point number three And even though this is more of an oblique point it is nonetheless important Court of Appeal appears to have equated being found Liable as a privy under section 96 of the BA with being a fraudster It is important to note that at no point in the proceedings below did either the monitor or the trustee ever seek to hold any of the appellants liable in fraud. And in point, in fact, Justice Dietrich did not adjudge any of the appellants liable in fraud. The closest that she got was to simply merely attribute John Aquino's fraudulent intentionality vis-à-vis the third-party creditors onto the corporate debtors themselves, with the concomitant Mr. result being...
3: Mr. Corsiano, um the Monitor and the Trustee took a recourses under Section 96 of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. Yes. Is that doctrine relevant for a recourse under Section 96 of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act?
1: Well, it is our respectful submission, Justice Cote, that they, quite frankly, they sued under the wrong cause of action. Section 96 of the BIA, its focus, by its express terms, is towards third-party creditors. Mm -hmm. It has no applicability in regards to any fraud that may have taken place within the corporate debtors themselves.
3: So would you say that this doctrine, the corporate attribution doctrine, has nothing to do with section 96?
1: Oh, it's very much so. Because if you look at section 96, and we've reproduced it in our condensed book at tab seven. So if you look at section 961B2B of the BA, which is the relevant provision here, it says clearly, The debtor intended to defraud, defeat, or delay a creditor. So the operative word here, of course, is intended. Intended is not defined anywhere in the BA. Though we can have recourse to a dictionary to assist us, in this case, it would be to no avail. So therefore, the only recourse that we have left is the common law. Now, why is it relevant? Because intentionality is a state of mind. And in the corporate context, because you're seeking to attribute the state of mind of an individual, a corporate agent, onto the corporate principle, it necessarily implicates the corporate attribution but doctrine. Do you didn't do deny that there was fraud in this case? Sorry? Do you deny that there was fraud in this case? By Mr. We deny that there was any fraud directed towards the third-party creditors. If there was any fraud, which was never, of course, adjudicated, it, it was within the company themselves. But that, that's a separate matter. That was well, never.
0: well, your client recognized that there was no value provided for the corporation Correct. for the payments.
1: Correct. W- t- what do you call that? Well, you have to understand the thinking here. The appellants were present under Section 96. There's a reverse onus. So it says that if when the trustee, or the monitor in this case says, assigns a monetary value for the, cons- for the consideration for the impugned transaction, that is the value that must be accepted by the court unless evidence is presented to rebut that presumption. So with the knowledge of corporate attribution as we understood it, which and was the case before the Court of Appeal changed the test, the appellants made a strategic decision that they're going to concede there was no monetary consideration. But the focus then would be on whether there was an intent, subjective intent, to fraud, defeat, or delay creditors. That was a real issue.
4: Mr. Corsiganos, you, you started by referring to Justice Lowers's reframing of uh, the principle at paragraph 78 of his reasons. So I take it you agree with Professor Wood's uh, article in the Canadian Business Law Journal, which has been presented for, before us, that this uh, misdirects the analysis. Is that that fair, that uh, what Justice Lowers refers to misdirects the analysis? Because obviously, if you place it as a debate between fraudsters and creditors, creditors are always going to win. That's correct. That's a a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's correct. But Professor Wood also goes on to talk about how the corporate attribution doctrine needs to be modified. Uh, in so the particular context of transfers of undervalue, because otherwise it makes no sense to allow a fraudster to say, I get to benefit from the defence uh, at the back end of the Canadian dredge test and therefore corporate attribution doesn't apply. That makes no sense whatsoever. And of course, in Liveant, the court also said that this is a public policy principle and that's also been enunciated repeatedly by the UK Supreme Court. So we have to apply this doctrine in this context with a degree of common sense? Uh, because you, as you, as you acknowledge to Justice Cote, you can't escape the issue of intent in section 96, so you've got to have a, a, a doctrine. Correct. So what's wrong with applying the first two prongs of the Canadian dredge test, but to recognize, as has been proposed by the trustee, that you can't look to the fraud of the directing mind, because that would allow the fraudster to benefit from their own fraud uh, to, uh, to defo- defeat creditors. What's wrong with that approach? Well, our approach, uh, uh,
1: Justice Jamal, is this. To adopt an approach proposed by my friends would fly right in the face of Canadian Dredge. Because one thing to point out... Canadian
4: Dredge was a criminal case dealing with criminal liability. It wasn't a case dealing with transfer uh, of undervalue where the affected parties are third-party creditors. So let me explain,
1: Justice Jamal. So as we said in our factum, there's an underlying rationale corporate attribution doctrine, which of course extends both in the uh, corporate and the civil context, and that is logical coherence. So, in the words of Justice Estee, because of the court back in Canadian Dredge delineated an outer limit, and it says very clearly, when you cross that outer limit, and that limit will be crossed when the director is actively defrauding the company that they purport to serve, And when there is no benefit to the company, either by intent or by result, well, then it's unrealistic in the extreme to consider that there's still a directing mind. And that's why we call the logical coherence rationale, because it would be incoherent to still consider someone uh, the director. Now, to address your concerns, well, the answers are actually quite simple. The monitor and the trustee, at any time, could have sued for a direct cause of, direct cause of action. So I agree they, with
4: you there, but so what? So what? Well, they sued under the wrong cause of action. Well, they've got multiple causes of action. They could have taken other proceedings. We're dealing with a transfer of undervalue claim. We're not dealing with a derivative action.
1: And that's why they failed, Justice Michael, because it's the wrong cause of action. They're, they're, it's misguided in the extreme. At a fundamental level, section 96, the raison d'etre, of that statutory provision, is fraud against third-party creditors. It has nothing to do with any internal fraud.
3: You no, know, it is a recourse belonging to the trustee or the monitor. 96 and sorry, what, I, what you say is that they have to prove that the debtor, and here the debtor is the company, uh, intended to defraud, defeat, or delay a creditor, a creditor of the company. That's and correct. you say here that uh, uh, the doctrine cannot apply because the conditions, the requirements are not met. Or you say if you fail on that, because this is what you say in your factum, you say then there should be a trial to, show, to, to, prove, well, what, to prove the intent that there was no uh, fraud against creditors of the company? Well, there's
1: two issues, right? So one issue is that we claim that John Aquino's state of mind, mm-hmm. as a matter of law, as a matter of law, cannot be imputed to the corporate debtors. Why? Because the minimal criteria, which this court has stated clearly, must always be met. Because they were not met, they fail on that fundamental. And as
3: a matter of fact, what do you say? So,
1: as a matter of fact, so this is our position. And this, of course, is in the alternative. So, Justice Dietrich stated that even though economic factors are important, in deciding the issue of whether mr aquino in fact had the requisite intent to fraud defeat or delay creditors she said they was not determinative in and of itself in our respectful submission economic factors under the right conditions can indeed be determinative and because justice dietrich stated that the record before the court did not allow her to make Uh, A a determination as to the true financial state of the companies at the time of the impugned transactions, which don't forget go back to 2014, then that was an issue which was left unresolved and that's why we respectfully submit in the alternative that this matter should be remitted back to Justice Dietrich with instructions that she conduct a trial with the benefit of viva voce evidence.
3: So, in your opinion, is it necessary to uh, present that evidence for each transfer? Because I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there were many transfers here Correct. over a period of five years. Yes. So, is it your view that uh, we have to analyze the situation? I mean, was there an intent to defraud, defeat or delay a creditor at the time of each transfer?
1: Well, I mean, that's a good question. So you have literally hundreds of transactions, so, I mean, but don't forget the economic condition of a company does not fluctuate day-to-day. So
3: This is why I'm asking the question, right. because it is possible that some of the transfers, there was no creditors who were waiting for their payment.
1: So let's say, for example, so the way the court would have to approach this position, so, because it's a very idiosyncratic test, and we've quoted the passage from Justice David M. Brown, as he then was, he's now court of appeal, where it's a combination, it's a hybrid subjective objective kind of a test. So the court has to put itself in the shoes of John Aquino at the time of the impugned transactions, assess what his subjective intentions were at that time, and also understand what are the objective uh, circumstances running. So in, re- in, like, in practice, how would this work out? So we would then, if this thing were to go to trial, we would probably have to break it from year to year, say, okay, in 2014, based on these financial statements, based on all this objective evidence, the company was strong.
2: Yeah, but isn't, isn't there a common pattern that these transfers this, were, were intended to give a picture of the company which was simply inaccurate. Money was taken out of the company at one point but when the time came to a report to prepare the financial statements it was put back in, then it was taken out again. Well, now, w- what possible purpose is there than to misrepresent the financial condition of the company?
1: I think, Justice rule, you're confusing two separate issues. There's, there was what was called the false invoicing scheme, which just simply involved money being siphoned out of the companies. And there was a fund cycling scheme which, which is what you discussed, where money was taken out and then put back in, that part was dismissed by Justice Dietrich. It's not part of this appeal, that was dismissed. So the issue then, and this is the c- argument that my friends made. They said, well, if money is being siphoned out of the companies under the false invoicing scheme, well then, obviously there's creditors here, uh, they've been defrauded. But the problem with that thinking is that it assumes a one-to-one kind of zero-sum game scenario, which was never the issue here. Because, again, not to get technical, but if you imagine a counterfactual scenario where the false invoicing scheme never took place, nothing would have prevented Bonfield from paying this extra money out to their employees or or to their shareholders as dividends. Yeah,
4: but that's not what happened. And so, I mean, even if, uh, even if the trial judge was right, that, uh, and we take it as right because we're deferring that finding that she couldn't determine the financial condition of the company at each point in time. That doesn't mean that the series of transactions, hundreds that you say, were not intended to defraud creditors. I mean, this isn't somebody taking money out of the petty cash one day to buy lunch. This is hundreds of transactions involving millions of dollars. Uh, So you have to look at this in that context. Whether or not at any particular time the company was going to go under because of the million dollar or ten million dollar, whatever it was, transfer, at the end of the day, this accumulation of transactions okay. was obviously going to, uh, you know, the merry-go- merry-go-round was going to stop at some point and then the creditors would be out of luck. Okay.
1: So to address your, your question, if you could turn to just as David M. Brown's uh, test, because that really encapsulates what you're seeing here. Tab 19, please. Tab 19. So this is what Justice David and Brown said, and this is this quote was was accepted at least implicitly by the Court of Appeal. So this is uh, tab 19 of our condensed book, please. So this is what he said: when inquiring into the intention of a debtor for the purposes of Section 96 of the BIA, and the Provincial Preferences Statutes for that matter. A court must ascertain the intention at the time of the transfer or transaction in light of the information known at that time. A court must resist the temptation to inject back into the circumstances surrounding the impugned transaction knowledge about how events unfolded after that time
4: and sometimes the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So,
1: Justice Jamal, what Justice Brown was saying here, and quite frankly we agree with, you can't, from, you can't uh, I mean, with, what do they say, a hindsight is twenty-twenty. We know that eventually Bondfield fell into financial distress. And it's easy to say, well, that was because we, there were these hundreds of these impugned transactions, but that is not the right test. The right test is really... That's why I said it's very idiosyncratic. You have to go back in time, almost a metaphysical kind of exercise, and ascertain, well, in 2014, what was the state of the company back then? Obviously, you, you have to ignore what happened in the years afterwards. So in 2014, if the company's doing well, if all the creditors are being paid in full time, how then can there be a subjective intent by John Aquino to defraud defeat creditors when they're all being paid, when the company's doing well. So your
3: position is that during that five-year period, some of those transfers could have been perfectly fine with no no intent to defraud creditors of the company, and some of them toward the end, toward the, the period where the company suffered financial difficulties, those may be problematic, and you say that this can be determined only if there is a trial.
1: If, and only if, you As a matter
3: of law, you- Yes, okay.
1: because there's an important distinction, because we're, our main point is this, as a matter of law, because of corporate attribution, John Aquino's intent cannot be attributed to the companies, which means their applications have to be dismissed in total. I'm, I'm sorry, sir, but it seems to me that it goes against
0: um, finding of the judge at 193 of, of the judgment when she says that uh, these these include John Aquino's admission that during the Bondfield review period he and Ralph routinely injected capital into BCCL to mislead to mislead BCCL's stakeholders into thinking that the Bondfield Group was financially financially stronger, how how can you reconcile what you what you're well, saying with, think, with, sorry, with the again, finding of
1: the judge? So, Chief Justice, again, as I said to Justice Roll, this was the different scheme. There are two different schemes. This was the false invoicing scheme where you had money which was taken out and money put back in. That scheme, the false invoicing scheme, or the fund cycling scheme, was dismissed by Justice Dietrich. That was dismissed completely. And it was never appealed by the monitor. So that issue is now res judicata. So, going back to our main, so, I know it's kind of difficult from a conceptual point of view, but you have here this, fu- this uh, false cycling scheme that went on for five years. Actually, it went on even for longer, eight years. But under the BIA, they can only go back five years. So you have a scheme which was going on for many, many years. And again, unless you dismiss it, uh, allow the appeals based on the issue of law, which we've raised, from a factual inquiry, it becomes very important that the court truly understand in any any given year the state of the company's financial affairs. Because only then, because going back to your question, if the company was experiencing financial distress, extreme financial distress, and yet monies are being siphoned out, then yes, the court could say, well, it's not objectively reasonable for Mr. Aquino to say i never intended to defraud the third party creditors. Provided, however, that the company truly was in financial distress. But back in 2014, 2015, 2016, when you look at the audited financial statements that show a company experiencing robust economic growth, that simply cannot be stated.
3: What do we, uh, what do we make with what the approach that the trial judge followed, uh, the application judge, in saying, "I'm going to look at badges of
1: fraud"? Okay. So the problem with uh, okay. So. There's two issues, again, so Justice Dietrich, with all due respect, basically read section 96 of the BA as effectively ousting the common law corporate attribution doctrine. We say that's an error in law, because this court has stated on numerous occasions that in order for the common law to be displaced by legislative action, the legislature must have act, again, I'm quoting from Justice Fouteau as he then was, with irresistible clearness, failing which the law remains undisturbed. So if we look at Section 96, can we discern a legislative intent with irresistible clearness that Parliament intended to displace the uh, common law corporate attribution doctrine? And the answer to that question is absolutely not. It's laconic. I have so, a question with regard to, sorry, to your left. It's okay, sorry. So with regard to Mr.
5: Aquino's concession that uh, regarding the fraudulent invoices, so what's your view then with regard to the social policy considerations when we're looking at um, the corporate attribution doctrine?
1: Well, so this is the beauty about uh, the Christine de Jong case. Because just as Brown, on behalf of a unanimous panel of the court, stated that Public policy considerations don't even come into play until that threshold issue is resolved. So he said, the court stated, unless these minimal criteria must always be met. And if they're not met, public policy doesn't come into play. Corporate attribution cannot apply. That's the beauty about that case. And that's why we call it the coup de grace in the monitors and trustees' applications, because Just as Dietrich made a finding of fact, so if you turn to um, um, tab six of our uh, condensed book, paragraph 217. She says, quote, the real issue in this matter relates to whether the actions were by design or result partly for the benefit of the corporations. I agree that the actions of John Aquino were not intended to benefit BCCL and former con, and they did not do so. If the Canadian Dredge criteria were applied strictly, it would mean that John Aquino's intent could not be attributed to the debtor corporation. So what's significant here? Justice Dietrich made a clear finding of fact that the false invoicing scheme was totally in fraud of the companies, and there was no benefit to the companies, either by design or by intent. So when you couple this finding of fact from Justice Dietrich with um, the Christine D- 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 John case, then in my respectful submission, it becomes dispositive that the appeal should be allowed in the application. Can I come s- back
5: to a couple of the questions that actually just the Chief Justice and Justice Jamal asked you yes. about the um, scheme of uh, withdrawing and injecting cash, yes. which did not meet the legal test and the judge um, dismissed that aspect, but can the evidence still not be relevant to whether the test is met with respect to an intent to defraud? If it shows an intent to, to hide the true financial state of the company, isn't that relevant to the issue before her? The well, fact that she dismissed a claim as not meeting a legal test does not mean that she didn't find as a fact that that happened and that
1: that can, uh, it can speak to, uh, can be so, relevant to the issue so of intent. Yes, yeah, so Just, Justice Caracazzari, so Justice Dietrich, when he came, so again, two separate issues here. You have the, the fund cycling scheme, which was dismissed. Now, when it came to the, the false invoicing scheme, Justice Dietrich's concern, and I, I mentioned that in the fact, and where basically she says, because you have all these badges of fraud, But don't forget, her focus then was more on, uh, she's trying to prove uh, fraudulent intent vis-à-vis third parties, not within the company. And she said, you know, she gave a a passage where she said, whatever the quantum which was taken out led to more indebtedness uh, to the company. And this is where she made an error, because she did this one-to-one ratio, which is fundamentally flawed, because the company was not a closed system. So, I hope. Although,
2: <laughs> although it is a matter of simple logic that if you take a dollar out, it ain't there. Money coming in and out of the company all the time. Correct. But let's say I take out twenty million dollars. You know, the treasury is, has got less twenty million dollars less in cash. So there is, in that sense, a one-on-one correspondence. No, because, okay.
1: Uh, No? Let me me give you, an okay, so to understand what was really going on here, and this is even in Justice Dietrich's decision. So you have, I think it was 2013, 2014, the, the monies that were siphoned out, the impugned transactions, it was something like $5 million. Yet the company for that year generated revenues of over 500 million. So the impugned transactions relative to the revenues that were being generated was insignificant. It's one to two percent. It was almost like a rounding error.
3: Mr. Corciano, I have a question for you because your time is flying. So you (laughs) say that uh, uh, the trustee and the monitor cannot get the benefit of this corporate uh, attribution doctrine and their recourse should fail. But if they cannot get the benefit of the doctrine as an evidentiary shortcut for the intent, yes, can they try to uh, prove the intent otherwise? The trustee and the monitor. Why are you asking us to dismiss their recourse entirely? Let's say that they cannot get the benefit of this doctrine to establish intent. The intent required in subparagraph B. Can they try to? the intent of the company to defraud, defeat, or delay creditors otherwise?
1: You're talking about a trial?
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, the point is this. They've taken a very stark position already. So, in a sense, they've already conceded that, see, just to flip it around, they never argued that there was any benefit to Bondfield Formicon from the false invoicing scheme. They never argued that. And they never argued that it was not totally in fraud. And that's why Justice Dietrich made that finding a fact that I agree, there's no benefit to the company. So that issue is now res judicata. They can't go to trial and say, well, you know what, John Aquino actually did intend to benefit the company, that would be a volte facie. They wouldn't be allowed to do that. So the only issue for a trial, as we said, is to address the factual matter of whether John Aquino did have the intent. And that would be, of course, depending on how well the company was doing because they presented evidence saying, well, yeah, the, the, the audited financial statements show that the company was doing well, but we don't trust the audited financial, the, the, the auditor is being sued. So they're questioning the evidence. So that is something where-
5: I, I guess I'm, what I'm having trouble with is this. If this goes back to a trial on the issue of whether there was a tent to defraud comp- uh, creditors. Right. How is it res judicata on that issue? No, no. Like her speci- you're saying all of her specific findings of fact remain? Well, like, they,
1: they could not take the claim.
5: That's not how a retrial works.
1: Okay, just to kind of concern. they cannot say at a trial that, they cannot argue that, well, the false stable scheme did in fact have a benefit to the company, that's where because it would be a volte facie. They couldn't do that. Where where the issue would arise at a trial is in terms of the accuracy of the evidence, like the financial statements and all that, just to show, because if they could prove that the company was in financial distress a lot earlier than we say it was, then then it would question Mr. Aquino's subjective intentionality. That's where the issue would arise at a trial. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: Mr. Opalski.
6: Chief Justice, Justices, the appellants defrauded formicon and bondfield of tens of millions of dollars. They come before you today to assert that Canadian dredge allows them to use this fraud, their own fraud, as a defense against the claim for a transferred undervalue. They say that Parliament's intent and this court's case law requires a rote and rigid reading of Canadian dredge, and we disagree. In lie event, when faced with a new statutory context, this court added a qualification to Canadian dredge. In order, in that case, to prevent a perverse outcome that would have rendered the statutory context, the mandatory audit in that case, meaningless, this court qualified the common law, and we asked the court to do the same here. We propose two qualifications to the common law that would address the novel context raised by this case, and my colleague, Mr. Mursky, on behalf of the Monitor, will then speak to the issue of statutory interpretation and whether Canadian dredge has any relevance here at all under Section 96. Do you
3: the view that Canadian dredge is relevant to a recourse under Section
6: 96? I'm sorry, I'm not Justice asking
3: half of Canadian dredge, the entire Canadian dredge. <coughs>
6: Mr. Mirsky is going to speak on the issue of how you use badges of fraud with respect to looking at the person in control of the corporation and attributing intent on that basis and I believe his submissions will be as he says in his factum that either you look at the first half of Canadian dredge which is a directing mind in the scope of his authority or you look at the case law which for hundreds of years has just looked at the person in control and the badges of fraud the result will be the same. The critical aspect which is consistent with my submissions, is the fraud and no-benefit defenses do not apply and cannot apply in the context of transfers at undervalue.
4: So when de Jong says uh, this minimal criteria, you're relying on the first two criteria and not the defenses. So the test you're proposing is consistent with de Jong and the Canadian dredge isn't to be applied, regardless of context, with both the two criteria and the two defenses, because it makes no sense to apply the fraud defense when the person invoking it is the fraudster.
6: We agree. It makes no sense, in fact, we would go further to say it actually turns Canadian Dredge on its head. It does the opposite of what Justice Justice Essie tried to do in Canadian Dredge, which is protect the corporation from the extremes of a rogue employee. Here, the appellants are saying, use Canadian Dredge to protect that rogue employee. That was not the point of Canadian Dredge. So this is why I
3: say, and I ask the question, Mr. Opolski, that doctrine, Canadian Dredge, and is it relevant to a Section
6: 96 application? And, and, and we say, Justice Cote, that we have given you we We've given this court two different paths to get there. My friends um, for the Monitor say, uh, and we ad- adopt and endorse their submission that you can get there under statutory interpretation to say it is not relevant. If you look at se- if you look at Section 96 and interpret Section 96 in the context of hundreds of years of how courts, since 1571, have pursued fraudulent conveyances. You can get there without corporate attribution. My submissions are that even if you do find that it is relevant, we can also get to the same result by modifying and qualifying the common law to deal with the two qualifications we propose. And and we are trying to look at this case and say, what is novel about this case? There are two aspects that are novel, Justice Coté. One that has ramifications, we believe, beyond the Section 96 context, and if this court wishes to take it up, it's welcome to do so, and that first context is the issue of can a directing mind, in a case between the directing mind and the corporation, can that directing mind rely on those two, uh, two defenses, fraud and no benefit, and we say... They cannot because, as I mentioned a moment ago, that would turn Canadian dredge on its head. And the second qualification we provide is that in transfers is undervalue in analogous provincial um, uh, causes of action. These two defenses also don't find a home. But whether you get there under statutory interpretation or whether you get there under the common law, we say the same result applies. We want to provide this court with multiple paths to get to what we say is the same right result. So, Before I get to my two qualifications, I just want to take a moment to respond to the gravamen of what I understand to be my friend's case. Because we believe there's a simple question that the appellants have failed to answer, which is this, why? Why would the common law allow a directing mind to use their own fraud as a defense? And why would parliament have intended to prevent recovery under a transferred undervalue where a directing mind's own scheme has created no benefit for the corporation? Just to give you an example, under the appellants approach, if a directing mind scheme also partially benefited the corporation, our friends say that the ten- transferred undervalue would then succeed because the no-benefit defense would not apply. But they argue, like here, that in acting totally in fraud of the corporation, with no benefit to that same corporation, the appellants now have a full defense to the transferred undervalue. Under the appellants approach, the worse the fraud, the less liable the fraudsters. And we say this makes a mockery of the rationality of the common law. The Court of Appeal called this approach counterintuitive and we say the appellants have a very high bar to clear to convince this court to undertake such a perverse approach.
4: The the defences in Canadian Dredge, obviously in the criminal context, are defences of fairness to ensure that the um, corporation isn't tarred with the criminality of the directing mind. That's the the context in which the defences are. Uh, invoked in this case it's not the corporation that's going to be harmed or uh, prejudiced it's actually the creditors so that's the, the context in which those defenses which obviously has no relevance in this particular context but we're not dealing with the corporation as such we're dealing with a uh, debate which is why I think in that context Justice Lowers's uh, statement of the test even though it's been commented upon by Professor Wood is irrelevant. Consideration for why the policy of Canadian dredge isn't being led to that rule, and those defences, as you call them in your factum, aren't applicable in this context. Absolutely, Justice Shamal. And, and and to be fair
6: to Justice Lowers, in paragraph seventy-two or seventy um, uh, early on in, in his in his um, uh, in his decision, he looks to Liveant and quotes from it directly and says. What is relevant is who should bear responsibility for the actions, because, and I accept that prof, what Professor Wood says, which is that is not specific enough of a test, and we have tried to give this court more specific language to give clarity to practitioners around the country.
3: Here, when you ask that question,
6: the answer is clear, and we say the answer is clear here, but Justice Lowers is taking a quote directly from LiveEnd, which is, you know, who bears responsibility for. The actions is, it may not be a test that is regularly applicable, but it is the principle underlying the test. And it was the principle underlying both Dredge and LiveEnt. And if you look at the UK law, whether it's Meridian, the JCPC in Meridian, whether it's Hong Kong Court of Appeal in Mulan, or in, in the UK Supreme Court in Bilta, they all talk about looking at the purpose underlying corporate attribution. Why are we attributing? Why are we looking to attribute? Um, And BILTA, is a very long decision with four separate speeches, but goes on in each speech to discuss this issue, which is you need to look at the context of attribution. BILTA says that corporate attribution is not a state of nature. It's not a descriptive state. That's a paragraph 202. It's rather, it's not the why, it is the consequence of asking the why in the statutory context.
4: Incremental changes to the doctrine. Do you want both of them? Do you say that both of them should be affirmed? We do say both of them should be affirmed, but we say that
6: either qualification would answer this appeal um, in full. Um, We think both bring clarity and coherence to the common law and will guide practitioners uh, and cases going forward. But should this court choose one or the other? Either would answer our appeal in full.
3: But Mr. Ropolsky, so I'm going back to the section 96. Yes. The debtor intended to defraud, defeat, or delay a creditor. So here, in this case, we have findings that this false invoicing scheme uh, by Mr. Aquino was in fraud of the corporation. Yes. So that intent, he, he, he defrauded the corporation, how can you say? in applying your modified doctrine, that it is an intention to defraud the creditors of the corporation at all relevant times, because we know that here we did not have a a one-shot deal, one payment at the time the company was insolvent.
6: No, we don't have a one-shot deal where the company is insolvent. Um, And let me take that, my answer uh, in pieces, if I can just it. Firstly, in the insolvency piece, it's important to look at section 96, which we have at tab six of our book, and look at 96.1b2a, um, um, which is the other branch, which requires the debtor to be insolvent at the time. That is not the branch we proceed under, we proceed under the other branch. So insolvency is not required. There needs to be a different way to determine intentionality, which is what Dietrich, Justice Dietrich did. What she looked at, and this can be found beginning at paragraph 158, which I believe is a tab two of our book, is she looked at the situation of the company throughout the period of the scheme, and she found that there were significant contingent and long-term liabilities throughout. This was not a case of meeting your payroll on the next week basis. This was a case of when the music stopped, if you had less money in your bank account, fewer people were going to get paid on a long-term and contingent basis.
3: What do we do when we, instead of taking the extra cash in the company through this uh, false invoicing scheme, the company is going well and shareholders decide to declare dividends?
6: So there are cases that find the dividends themselves can be um, so
3: this is a transfer under value, would you say that a dividend is a transfer under value on a? Well,
6: well I'm, I, Justice Godet, I would say that on a case-by-case basis, if you can improve intentionality, it could be um, a transfer under value, but here, that's not what they did. I
3: know, but I'm trying to see the consequences of, a sure. de- of, of the decision that you are asking us to render. If a company is going very well, they are making a lot of cash, and they say, oh, we are going to take the cash. We'll make sure that our liabilities are covered, but we'll not leave the cash in the company and we'll declare dividends in respecting all the financial ratios and all of that. Uh, So these are transfers under value. Is it possible for a monitor if the company uh, uh, does not go well uh, in the other years to come back and to say you have to reimburse all the dividends?
6: So, Justice Godet, just to take that again in slices. Firstly, we accept that the financial condition of insolvency is not required for this step. So what is required is proving intentionality. Intentionality and the badges of fraud are fundamentally case-specific. We defer to the trial judge in our findings here. There are some cases where transfers and undervalue have been alleged about dividends where they're between related parties and the facts can support the intentionality to defeat defraud or delay. But that is not the case here. We are so far away on the spectrum where these transfers, and we have the details again at tab two of our scheme, were in secret. They were done with names of companies that were purposely deceptive. They were done with the IT professional sending out the requests for invoices. They were paid in a company that had a 30 to 60 day payment cycle. Because of liquidity issues, they were paid the next day. This is not
4: the argument that we heard that it needs to be analyzed under 96 in an atomistic kind of way. It's got to be transaction by transaction at that specific time and not sort of with hindsight. Justice Jamal, <coughs> there were hundreds and
6: hundreds and hundreds of transactions. But what Justice Dietrich found is they all followed the same pattern. They were a consistent scheme, a, a, a fraudulent con- scheme to deceive and defraud the company and its creditors. I take you to-
3: Defraud the company, but the first, the first transfer Can you tell us that there is evidence to say that there is clear intent to defraud the creditors of Banfield and...
6: Justice Cotea, I I would answer that in two parts. Firstly, the the trial judge did find there was clear fraud and there's no palpable and overriding error and that is a requirement to defer to her. But moreover, I would take you to paragraph 162 of her decision where she says, there is no innocent explanation for a false invoicing scheme. What other explanation could there be other than to remove money from the company that could have been used to pay its long-term contingent creditors eventually. What other explanation could there be with respect for putting money in at the end of the year, as she says at paragraph 158, with respect to the false invoicing scheme in order to deceive your creditors to make it look like you have more money? They had credit lines. They were. Uh, I, my client is uh, the trustee of Formicon. Formacon, <coughs> was the guarantee of all these larger loans. So the less money it had, the less able it was able to make those contingent liabilities.
2: If if I'm a supplier, a big supplier, and I'm going to uh, deliver goods, several million dollars, maybe I want to see your audited financial statements, and maybe I want to set the terms upon payment having regard to what I take to be Accurate financial statements. And if it looks like you're kind of teetering on the edge, I'm on cash on delivery, or you're not getting it, as opposed to these guys are flush with cash. Ninety days is fine by me
6: absolutely, Justice Rowe, but it goes beyond a trade creditor. These are these are bank creditors, these are loans, these are guarantees, these are facilities. And they were actively deceiving those creditors on the state of their financial well-being. Chief Justice, may I have 30 seconds to conclude? 30 seconds. Thank you. In this case, the appellants collaborated in a fraudulent scheme to steal over $30 million in five years. And Justice Dietrich and her cost endorsements called this corporate looting. Forty years ago, when Canadian judge was decided, it was designed to protect a corporation from the actions of its rogue employee. That is not the case here. No public policy is served by immunizing these appellants. We ask this court to clarify or qualify the common law to ensure that Canadian dredge is not abused in this fashion. Those are my submissions subject to your questions. Thank you very much. Mr. Mursky.
7: Get the right glass to start with. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. Uh, I have four points to make to you this morning. Uh, And the first is that a rote application of Canadian dredge directly conflicts with the statutory language of no benefit. The second is that the language of Section 96 existed long before Canadian dredge, and there is no basis to assume Parliament intended to import dredge into the section. The third relates to the value of the TUV as a remedy, and that is simply that the TUV as provided by parliament is a much better remedy for court officers than fraud. And the final point is with respect to the financial condition of the debtor And I recognize that there have been a number of questions and that my time is relatively short. So I'm happy to address those points uh, in any order that you like. And in fact, (coughs) it may assist if I start with the point about the relevance of the fund cycling scheme, because it is accurate to say that the monitor made allegations about the fund cycling scheme. (coughs) And it is accurate to say that no TUV was found for that fund cycling scheme. (coughs) But the basis of those allegations was a lot of money flowed out of the company separately from the fake invoices. A lot of money was paid to John Aquino's holding company, whether through direct payment, check, or otherwise. He claimed there was consideration, he claimed there was value. But the point for Justice Dietrich was in the five year look back window, the net outflow to John Aquino was uh, lower than the net inflow back into Bondfield. So her point was, and the the monitor's point against that was, but during this time, and prior to this time, he was already stripping so much money out of the company that there was no other source of funding for him to repay those prior payments. Now, that allegation failed. It's absolutely clear, and we didn't appeal it. But what Justice Dietrich did say, as a number of you have recognized, that the things that John Aquino did as part of that, including making the company look flush with cash from time to time in order to look good to its bonding agencies and to its bankers so that they would advance credit and then remove that cash, are signs of poor financial condition. As Mr. Apolsky said, you don't have to be insolvent in order to, under the related party test, have an intention to defeat, defeat defraud delay. In fact, there's case law under the fraudulent conveyance legislation, which simply says that if you're embarking upon a risky venture, and Justice Dietrich referred to this, that if you're embarking on a risky venture, steps to creditor proof, such as in the personal context where a spouse transfers a house uh, before starting a construction business, that those steps alone can be sufficient to show the intention to defraud. And that's the reason for which Justice Dietrich said economic intent in an economic circumstance in and of itself isn't determinative. And she was relying upon the Court of Appeal, Justice Van Rensburg in Urban Corps who made the very same point. So the evidence has come out a bit, I would say disjointed this morning with respect to what the determination on the fund cycling scheme was. The monitor lost the argument that there was a TUV with respect to the fund cycling scheme. The monitor did not lose the argument that the irregular inflows and outflows of cash were part of a picture of poor economic health along with a raft of other factors such as uh, financial statements that didn't bear any connection to reality, uh, but was a number of, one of a number of factors that demonstrated the company was in risky condition or as Justice Lowers himself put it, that anyone would have known that a company of this size engaged in the construction industry with these kind of outflows was at least acting recklessly, those were Justice Lowers' words, in taking this kind of money out of the company. therefore-
3: You said you referred to Urban Corp. Yes. And you say that uh, Justice Van Rensburg wrote what she wrote. She says that you have to show that the conditions of section 96 are met and speaking about badges of fraud Uh, She says that uh, the burden is on you, the burden of proving fraudulent intent is on the party seeking to avoid the transfer. And while badges of fraud uh, are in this year of fraudulent intent, their presence does not mandate an inference of fraud to be drawn. So uh, here I understand that uh, Justice Dietrich found some badges of fraud, but uh, you say that we cannot revisit that? Because Justice Van Rensburg is clear in urban court that uh, it does not mandate an inference.
7: Justice Van Rensburg is correct. She also says this in urban Corp, which is what I was pointing you to, at paragraph 64, which is at tab 15 of my contents brief, it's of assistance. She says, despite this one broad statement, however, there is no special rule that makes evidence of a debtor's insolvency determinative, as opposed to one factor that may be considered. Now let me return to your point about the factors. There can be a number of factors. Frankly, for Justice Dietrich, I think it was sufficient that there were fake invoices, that there were fake suppliers, that they copied names from real suppliers in order to be deceptive that they shared addresses, that they shared bank accounts, that the payments were assisted by Mr. Aquino's cousin internally, that Mr. Aquino as the CEO of the corporation, a ostensibly billion dollar corporation, signed over a hundred of the checks himself, that they were paid within days rather than 30 days on net terms, 60 days or 90 days. She found all those things to be badges of fraud. And I think you could take from Justice Dietrich's judgment and from Urban Corp Justice Cote that those in and of themselves irrespective, and I'm not ignoring the financial condition because I'm going to come back to that, the financial condition was atrocious, but those things in and of themselves are badges of fraud. A fraudulent invoicing scheme, phony invoices are in and of themselves a badge of fraud sufficient to infer an attempt to defeat the creditors, to defraud the creditors. Now she spent a lot of time on the economic conditions because the issue was squarely raised And the Court of Appeal spent a lot of time on the economic conditions, at least assessing what Justice Dietrich assessed. And the Court of Appeal pointed out that the argument put by the appellants today, which isn't very different from the argument put by the appellants at the Court of Appeal, is that it mischaracterized her reasons. And for that, I would like to take you to the Court of Appeal's reasons on that point. Uh, That is, I have at tab 17 of my compendium, but it's at paragraph 37 uh, of the Court of Appeals Reasons. At the end of paragraph 37, where he quotes the statement that the true financial conditions cannot be determined on the record before the court, Justice Lowers goes on to say, quite fairly, that doing so mischaracterizes the meaning of her observation. The application judge mastered a phalanx of facts in support of her conclusions. And Justice Lowers summarizes in about a third of the space that Justice Dietrich took based on thousands of pages of evidence and cross-examination, what those factors were specifically with respect to the financial conditions. So that is the reason that the monitor and the trustee says there's absolutely no basis on which this court can or should interfere. And in fact, in fairness to Justice Dietrich, what was before her was a company on uncertain financial conditions at very best. If you, even want to take, if you even want to take the appellant hypothesis that, well, this was at 1 or 2 percent a small fraction of the revenues of the company, you fail to understand, and my friends haven't put it in evidence, what was the profit of the companies? Because in the construction industry, it's notorious that profit is a tiny fraction of revenue. And so if you're pulling out $20 million, that may not be the only reason for the collapse, by all means. There are risky construction projects underway at the same time. But then if you are pulling out that money while engaged in multi-year risky construction projects with high capital requirements, you are taking a deliberate risk with the creditors. And if you're Mr. Mesky, can
4: I ask you about what you stated in your overview as your second point and for which Mr. Opolsky's argument was stated to be in the alternative? Yes. Uh, it seems to me, the statute talks about intent, you're going to have to have some doctrine to attribute the directing mind's intent to the corporation, whether you call that the common law or some other doctrine. So I'm trying to understand how you can resolve this case without some notion of corporate attribution. Or is it that your first point, the, the, the primary position is that the unmodified Canadian dredge test doesn't apply because the statute uh, was, predates it and, So I'm trying to understand how that relates to the common law.
7: Well, my my critical point, however we get there, uh, is that you cannot apply the defenses or the exceptions set out in dredge of fraud or no benefit because the statute itself defines a TUV as being a circumstance of no benefit, of either no consideration or less consideration to the corporation. And I want to emphasize, though, that a circumstance of less consideration to the corporation, the delta to fair market value, that is still of no benefit to the corporation. And let me address the rest of your question, Justice Jamal. But that we, first
4: point can actually relate to the application of Canadian dredge too, right? I mean, it's not a separate point. It's another reason why the defense isn't. Correct. One it, of it, the defenses is clearly not applicable.
7: J- Justice Estee himself in writing the decision said he didn't intend it for it to be a universal law applicable to all circumstances. Everything written about the case and in fact in live event and so on is all contextual, De Jong was a a very narrow case dealing with an attribution of liability to to the corporation, to the person behind it on the basis of knowing assistance in breach of fiduciary duty, which Justice Van Rensburg simply said, well, that's a very serious allegation resulting in very serious liabilities and that's the reason for the term minimum benefit. But let me return to your point, Uh, what doctrine should apply? In my submission, the labels are not particularly important the the practice that has been applied to Section 96 and the like has been to uh, identify a controlling mind, a directing mind and badges of fraud. Now you can fit that well within the first part of dredge and you can uh, modify dredge as Mr. Opolsky has suggested to you or modify it by simply reading dredge to say of minimum benefit to impose liability upon the corporation. I think I misstated that, of min- minimum criteria to impose uh, a liability upon the corporation. But the only fundamental thing is you don't apply the exceptions or defenses and you have a perfectly workable statute which tells you, okay, if there's been no consideration, if there's been less consideration, and then if you look and find badges of fraud committed by people who are not in the book room, who are not in the in- on the dock. Then you probably have something that you can attribute to the corporation, yeah. subject to the surrounding circumstances, because these are all contextual. Now, it, it seems to me that there's a fundamental difference in
2: presenting your company to a potential lender by saying, we've got 50 million in retained earnings here. We're, we're pretty solid, versus the 50 million in retained earnings is gone. And they're just <laughs> running the place on cash flow and rubbing the lucky rabbit's foot. I mean, <laughs> Would you assess the risk differently in situation A versus situation B and was not the whole purpose of this to make one situation appear to be the case, i.e. lots of retained earnings, versus the retained earnings
7: are gone? That's absolutely the case, Justice Rowe. And simply put, if you have a solid base of retained earnings, your creditor base is at less risk which may lessen potentially the intention to defraud, although I do commend Justice Dietrich's words to you, there can be no innocent explanation for a a fake invoicing scheme. In that circumstance, all of the rest of these factors support her conclusion as well, but let's not back away from the raw fraud that was before the trial judge. That's what it was by the time that we got there. And she said, there's no explanation for this that could take it outside of the words of the section, except for the creative arguments around Canadian judge, which she rejected on the policy basis that you've identified, Justice Jamel.
3: The same question. Let's say that the retained earnings are not there because of declaration of dividends, uh, transfers on value. So what do we do with that, the, the dividends are declared and legitimately the, the shareholders say we don't, we don't need to, put, to leave a lot of money in the corporation in case it's not going well uh-huh. one day. Uh-huh. So, so, but I'm asking the question, what would happen in that case?
7: Dividends are a more, more nuanced question. Uh, but they can be a transferred undervalue mm-hmm. because by definition, the shareholders just being given the profit of the corporation, they're legally entitled to that profit in the relevant circumstances when the corporation has the ability to pay dividends. Now obviously a corporation is not permitted to pay dividends when it's insolvent. Mm-hmm. So this issue will only arise for the related party test under the five year window uh, with respect to the intention to defraud, defeat, delay. I would say it might be more difficult in those circumstances and it may be less common, but it is still possible for using your example, Justice Cote, if a corporation decides to run on a very thin capital base and pushes all of its profits out the door and comforts itself by saying, I can pay my liabilities tomorrow. I can pay my liabilities today. That's the cash flow test of insolvency. I've satisfied the CBCA director liability requirements. That may not be enough, but it might depend on the industry. If you're a real estate trust, you've got an extremely stable industry in which part of the tax structure is built by pushing some of the profit out of the door. But what if you are in an industry with high capital requirements, and in fact, you need to renew your business, you need to reinvest in the inventory, you're in retail, you need to reinvest in the stores or the business will go on an inexorable slide to collapse. Well, if it happens outside of five years, it's not gonna do us any good to the TUV, so that's another comfort. But if you've done it by having a thinly capitalized company in a risky industry where you need to spend the money rather than giving it to your shareholders as profit, that could be a fair TUV. Might not be a fraud. Though. Thank you very much.
0: The court will take its morning break 15 minutes. The court, the court. Monsieur Daou.
8: Oh. Uh, Bonjour Monsieur Juge chef, justices. I am uh, Charles Daou, Daou, counsel for the appellants uh, in the Golden Elks matter for, before you today. This case is about the defenses to claims in unjust enrichment, namely limitations and equitable set off. These are defenses to claims being brought by the trustee in the shoes of the debtor, as if he were Golden Oaks, the corporation, acting itself. The trustee here is not acting in his representative capacity, as is the case in the case you heard earlier this morning in Aquino. And this is the fundamental difference between the two cases. In Aquino, this court is dealing with the transferred undervalue provisions at section 96. In that capacity, the trustee is indeed representing the estate as well as the interests of other creditors. But here we are dealing with regular claims that are subject to regular limitation periods. And these belong to the bankrupt and they're essentially property of the bankrupt to be disposed of for the benefit of the estate under sections 30 and 71 of the BIA. So when the trustee inherited these claims, he gained no greater rights than those of the bankrupt. And this is settled case law. And that means that the claims vested in him, quote, warts and all, to use the words of Justice Binney in Saunier, paragraph 50. And these warts include any applicable limitation period or set-off defense that may attach to it. And this is where the courts below got it wrong. They invoke the equities among the bankrupt's creditors to bypass these defenses. But the existence of other creditors is an irrelevant consideration when the trustee is bringing a claim in the name or in the shoes of the bankrupt. Otherwise it would mean that the trustee would inherit greater rights than those that belong to the bankrupt or to the debtor. Now, the respondent trustee will have you believe that it is unfair for the appellants to keep the amounts being claimed because they were involved in an illegal scheme. And I'm sure it will take you to a text message by one of the appellants, Mr. Scott, where he refers to Golden Oaks as being a Ponzi scheme. This is a finding of Justice Garmory, it's in the record, we don't contest it. However, the findings in relation to Mr. Scott do not apply to all the other appellants. These appellants are all ordinary, regular people who lost significant amount of money. And I've prepared an aid memoir for the benefit of the court, and I'd like to take you to tab A of my uh, condensed book. <coughs> And this is where I've listed all the parties and the issues that apply to them. As you can see, there's three grids. The first one regards the main appeal before you today, and that's the one I call usurious interest appeal. The second is the referral agreements, and that's one of the secondary agreements. And then there's the last issue relating to Mr. Scott in relation to the Section 95 preference claim. And in terms of the um, uh, columns that I've prepared. Uh, the first one is the principal that was loaned or invested in Golden Oaks. The second column, or the third, pardon, is the interest that they receive that's being claimed against them in the context of this appeal. And the middle column that's darkened is the amount that they would stand to lose even if set-off were applied, which it wasn't. So at the moment, if this appeal is dismissed, they would both lose the principal loaned and as well have to pay into the estate the amount of interest being claimed.
4: What are the time periods involved, though? Because the interest is one thing on the principle, but the time period is what gets us into the massive rates, right? The criminal rates.
8: The t- uh, they were uh, promissory notes that were uh, short- over a short period. So they would say, for example, loan me uh, $50,000. Sure. Within six weeks, you get 4000 back. back. It would be only 10-20%, but when you extrapolate it over 12 months, sure. it becomes... but that's a, missing, that's
4: a missing piece of information on your chart, right? Your aid memoir? Because the whole point about the claim about the uh, public policy principle and not applying, uh, uh, allowing parties to receive a legal interest is that they may not have been uh, aware of the Ponzi scheme, but they were certainly aware they were getting 67,000% Interest or an enormous amount of money, and uh, you know, basically, buyer beware. You you enter into a transaction like that. Don't say it's unfair or unconscionable or contrary to equity. To uh, to. Uh, to, to uh,
8: well, I, I see your point. Allow the limitation to period to run. I see your point, just Jamal. But the, the harshest criticism the trial judge had for the appellants was that they were perhaps negligent investors. That they should have known it was too good to be true, and it was. And let's take, for example, one of the appellants, Janet Arsenal. She's a widowed pensioner who invested the entirety of her life savings, fifty thousand dollars, into Golden Oaks, or José Bouchard, who uh, invested the proceeds from a sale of her home, uh, and this was the first ever investment she made ever in her life, or even Lee Thunuyan, who went to see these properties and was, was you know, taken. Uh, Well for a ride, but she she thought she was helping disadvantaged people become homeowners And these are all in the record. These are affidavits that I've included in my in my compendium
4: We're going to sue when it was controlled by mr Scott, how is it ever gonna sue
8: by uh, mr. Lacasse? Sorry well uh, Justice Jamal it, it could have happened, but it didn't but mr. Lacasse could have woken up one morning realized I'm up to my ears in debt how do I get out of these promissory notes? He went to see a lawyer. Lawyer said, this is usurious. You should claim for unjust enrichment. And he could have, but he didn't. But
4: well, then he probably would have gone to jail,
8: right? Perhaps, but this comes to 5184. Well, how, re-
4: how realistic is it then to say this is what should have happened?
8: But the corporation could have been sold uh, to, to a third party, and the p- third party realized that uh, these loans had been usurious and then claimed on behalf of the corporation as well. And these are all hypothetical scenarios.
2: Generally, if you buy a corporation, you want to have a look at the books.
8: (laughs) And I think you'd find that there was something a little unusual about these arrangements. Understood. But as we can see from this case, not everyone is as diligent as perhaps they should have been. But given the amounts at play, I'm not sure if this court can expect everyone to, you know, the due diligence they did is what... They did, they visited the properties, they they went, uh, you know, they spoke to Mr. Lacasse, but I don't want to, I want to get to my main arguments on uh, section 12 uh, and 5184 and then the set off. And I'd like to take the court there now. <clears throat> section 12 and
3: section 5. Five 5184.
8: Also, because yes, it's absolutely. very important here. They're related. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, and one last point I wanted to make in terms of introduction. And I want to refer to what Lord Sumption referred to in BILTA, and that's at paragraph 91 of the uh, the, uh, UK Supreme Court. And there's no reason why this court shouldn't protect what are innocent but negligent outsiders. And this is what they are. They are third parties. They weren't involved in this scheme. They didn't have an active participation. They lent money on exchange for interest. And that interest has already been cured by Justice Garmory. She used the blue pencil approach. Those contracts have been cured. Only the principle is out now. There is no longer any illegality to their contracts. In terms of a roadmap, uh, for Section 12, our position is that it's a complete answer to the issue of discoverability. Using corporate attribution doctrine or its residual discretion to divorce Golden Oaks, from its sole directing mind and will, not only does it enrol in what the legislature has decreed, but would render Golden Oaks and what the Lord Sumption referred to in the same case Bilta, as a mindless automaton or a ghost in the ether. Those are my words. <clears throat> and second, the trial judge had it wrong when she concluded that it was not appropriate for Golden Oaks to commence a legal proceeding under Section 5184. Whether it's in one's interest or not to initiate a proceeding does not mean it is not legally appropriate. It doesn't mean that the party doesn't have legal capacity. Whether the claim might succeed is an irrelevant consideration.
3: Uh, Is it related only about the legal capacity to institute a claim, or can it be also uh, in connection with a factual uh, possibility to uh, institute a lawsuit? Because here it's clear that factually, it was unlikely that Mr. Lacasse, the directing mind of the corporation, would have uh, said to his corporation, please sue me.
8: Yes, I understand. So, uh, and I think this is where the, uh, Justice Gomery got it wrong. She referred to Novak versus Bond McLaughlin. And she was looking at the BC le- uh, legislation in terms of limitation where factual context does inform whether uh, uh, legal action can be appropriate. This is not the case here in Ontario. There's 20 years of, uh, of, of uh, jurisprudence that says that it's legal capacity, and there's usually two exceptions. Whether there's some expert who undertakes to repair the damage, or if there's some uh, extrajudicial um, solution. And these are the two exceptions that have been found. Otherwise, legal capacity, whether it's legal appropriate, whether it succeeds, whether the person wants to, or if it's in interest. And here, even if, frankly, he had brought the un- un- uh, <coughs> unjust enrichment, the defendants could have uh, claimed extra causa and might have succeeded. But it doesn't matter. He could have. And that's the key. I'll come back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the two last arguments uh, in my factum, uh, I, first of all, I will go to set off, but uh, before then, given the time constraints, I did want to briefly uh, go over um, the argument regarding uh, referral agreements. And Justice Sawson said that they were illegal at common law. That was never argued at trial. It just wasn't. And he interpreted the pleading as meaning unlawful and contrary to the Securities Act. But I've included it in my book of authorities at tab three. (coughs) So the submissions, and it's not, sorry, not not my condensed book, but the book of authorities. I didn't include it in my condensed book. But it was only the breach of the Securities Act that was argued. That's it. There was no unlawful uh, at common law. And In any event, the Court of Appeal also failed to consider whether the appellants could count on the defense of in delecto. There is no context that they were less blameworthy than Lacasse and Golden Oaks when entering into the agreements. And the, the agreements themselves, the trial judge concluded, were not per se illegal. She said they were entered into an ultimate illegal purpose, but the agreements themselves weren't. So the appellants were not aware Golden Oaks was a Ponzi scheme, and, including those that were entered into referral agreements. Even for Mr. Scott, at the time of the referral agreement, none of the red flags had been presented to him. That came a few years, years later.
4: I follow you. Why aren't agreements entered into in furtherance of a Ponzi scheme illegal at common law? Uh, especially given the prohibitive rates of interest that were at issue in this case and the purpose of the contract. Like The, the, the purpose of the contract, was an illegal purpose to uh, artificiality and to promote a Ponzi scheme. Why is that not a basis of well, illegality?
8: Given that it wasn't argued at trial, I, I don't know if we should get into it, but even if they were illegal at common law. And I,
4: well, isn't it a isn't it, it's a question of law as to whether these were illegal,
8: isn't it? But our position, if they, in, in, indeed if they were, and, and- Why aren't
4: they? Why aren't they? You're saying they're not illegal. Why aren't they illegal? I,
8: no, I said the trial judge found that they were not per se illegal, but that they were in furtherance of a legal purpose. Okay. But our position is, even if this court finds that they were illegal at a common law, which we say can't do because it was never argued before the trial judge, the defendants had... It's sort of um, implicit in the trial judge's reasons, though, isn't it? Perhaps. And I, I won't concede the point, but for the sake of argument, I will say that, nevertheless, the defendants had the defense of imperi delecto. Thank you. And in terms of Mr. Scott, um, in respect to uh, his acting uh, at a non-arms length in context of the Section 95 preference uh, claim, there is a contradiction between the, the trial ju- judge's findings. On the one hand, Justice Garmy said that Golden Oaks was solely controlled and entirely controlled by Mr. Lacasse. And she says this at many times, paragraphs 394, 399, 421, 422. But on the other hand, she also finds that Mr. Scott was acting in whatever way furthered his interest. And so there was a constant tension between Mr. Scott and Lacasse in Golden Oaks. They were not in concert or in cahoots. And Mr. Scott, you know, he would lie to Mr. Lacasse. He would try to extract security for some of his loans. And these findings are at paragraphs 352 and 321, 335, 341, 348 of the trial judge decision. Our position is that she made an error in principle in saying that the whole relationship counted in the valuation of individual transactions. But even then and if she made a palpable overrunning error in finding Mr. Scott was acting for his own interest, but at the same time also acting with, it, uh, with concert with Mr. Lacoste. And that's a contradiction here. Now to section 12. I know this is what <laughs> is the most important part. There's no dispute that the claims are out of time. The payments in issue were made between June 2011 and April 2013, and this is in the trial decision of paragraph 398. And the expiry of the two-year limitation is at the latest April 2015. The claims were issued in July 2015, so they're out of time. We can't be sure why the trustee decided to proceed by way of unjust enrichment. There there were more powerful tools in his arsenal. He could have brought preferences, claims under 95, could have brought Section 96 claims for transfers at undervalue. Presumably, the temporal limits imposed by Parliament, for example, the three months for non-arms length preferences or one year for non-arms length transfers could not be bypassed. But as mentioned, in bringing these claims, the trustees stepped out of the bankruptcy sphere where the normal limitation periods apply. And the BIA doesn't displace that presumption. That the trustee, for, and the trustee accepts that he is vested with Golden Oaks knowledge of the claims as successor and in interest under section 12.1. And that's a paragraph 30 of their factum. And our submission is, we don't even need to go to 12.2 an agency. We don't even need to go to corporate attribution. 12.1, paired with the primary or conventional rules of attribution, are enough to impute Lacasse's knowledge of the claims to Golden Oaks. And Lacasse was Golden Oaks' sole director, shareholder, and officer. Lacasse solely and entirely controlled Golden Oaks. And this is where the primary rules of attribution become useful. And I'll refer to uh, Lord Hoffman's decision in Meridian, which is not in my condensed book, but it's, uh, I believe you must have it, 1995 Privy Council case. And he says that the primary rules are usually found in a company's constitution or the Articles of Association, but, but he also says that there are also primary rules of attribution which are not expressly stated but implied by company law, such as a unanimous decision of shareholders. And these primary rules are obviously not enough to enable a company to go about in the world and do business, so, which is why we refer to agency rules to impute the knowledge and conduct of agents to the company. And this is our main point. Golden Oaks only ever acted through Lacasse. The corporation <clears throat> and the matter are inseparable. It would create…
4: between this case and the other case, in the sense that the statutory provisions only take you so far, you still need some doctrine of attribution, and you have cited English case law, but what about live end at paragraph 104, that the court should refrain from
8: applying corporate attribution doctrine where it would not be in the public interest to do so? Yes, and uh, our position is that the Court of Appeal in, in, in invoking this discretion and this doctrine had it wrong. The legislature has already spoken. And in 12, and our position is that 12-2 crystallizes the application of those regular conventional primary rules of attribution. 12-2 is principle and agent. And so these two deeming provisions together are a complete answer. Doctrine is only useful if the primary rules uh, can't apply or if there's no statute that imputes knowledge. And this is the case here. But
3: so, we have to... Uh, because you say Section 12 uh, resolves the matter, but Section 12 has to be read in connection with 5. Yes. And it is the beginning of uh, Section one and Section 12.2. Yes. And 5 says that not only you you need to know about the claim yes but also because there is a and and uh, we have this um, appropriate thing
8: yes and i'll get to 5184 right now and Mm. as i mentioned appropriate means legally appropriate the factual consideration doesn't come into play and because the facts would mean that you'd have to evaluate whether the proceeding will succeed or other tactical consideration. The case law in Ontario is clear that those are not relevant factors. It may still be legally appropriate for claims to be commenced, even if it's against one's own interest to do so. And This is not me who says it, it's Justice Horrigan and Sonowski, and I've included it in my uh, condensed book at tab 14. And this is where the trial judge aired. She found that Lacasse would not be motivated to commence a claim because it would undermine his scheme. But that can't be a consideration. The case law for the last 20 years in Ontario says that it's only whether it's legally appropriate, whether there's a legal capacity. And Sonowski refers to just a sharp at uh, paragraph 18. And there's no, and he explains, and I'm paraphrasing, that there's no evaluative gloss to the uh, analysis. And at paragraph 19, Justice Hurgan says, appropriate does not include an evaluation of whether a civil proceeding will succeed. And at paragraph 27 is where it's important. He distinguishes Novak because Novak refers, uh, refers to BC's uh, legislation. And he says at the end of paragraph 27, it is a very different provision than 51 a 4 In my view, Novak does not assist the appellants because British Columbia legislation explicitly permitted an evaluation of whether it was in a plaintiff's interest to commence a proceeding.
4: Um. A, though, the day on which the person with the claim first knew, uh, because here the person with the claim is the corporation, right? So we're back into corporate attribution. So we're getting back into when it it is appropriate to say that the corporation knew, having regard to the fraudulent acts of the the, uh, directing mind, and we're back into public policy. So I don't think you can get out of this by um, reading uh, the Limitations Act on its own, and I guess the, the other point is that the, your, co- your colleagues on the other side say 12.1.2 isn't applicable e- either in this case, we're dealing with 12.1 uh, because we're dealing with a case of uh, a proceeding commenced by a successor, not by a principal.
8: Well, respectfully to my friends, I believe they have it wrong. They say that it, the trustee is not the principal, but of course it's not. It's, the principal is Golden Oaks, the corporation, and the agent is Lacasse. A corporation can only ever act through its agents, through its human beings who do have a mind and a will. Sure. And there's only one person that qualifies in this case. And, uh, and, and Justice Cote, uh, just to reinforce the point that I've been making, in Rydell versus Goldenberg, uh, also my condensed book at paragraph 16, um, Again, we're dealing here with knowledge and capacity. The the plaintiffs in in that case had knowledge of the claim, but they didn't have capacity to bring because it belonged to the corporation. They only had capacity to bring the claim when they were assigned to them after the bankruptcy. And that's when it was legally appropriate for them to bring the claim, even if they had knowledge. They were human beings with the knowledge of it, but they couldn't because they weren't in control of the company. And this, you know, and. This is Justice Van Rensburg who, who rendered that decision. And as I mentioned, Lacasse could have woken up one morning and realized, I have to get out of this mess. He didn't, but that's again yeah. all hypothetical. Sometimes people get religion and they confess, but not, that's not what we're dealing with here. Unfortunately not, and we wouldn't be here <laughs> if, if that had been the case. Perhaps we'd be uh, before the Pope. Um, and another example as well uh, in terms of 5184 the Court of Appeal has also ruled that limitation periods apply to dissolved corporations. It applies to companies that no longer exist. And this is the, the Shell case. It's in my uh, factum, but I can give you the reference uh, for your notes. It's 1998, Canley 1775. So if limitations can apply to an entity that no longer exists, surely the presence of wrongdoing is insufficient to, like, to displace limitation periods. And such a conclusion would otherwise apply to all persons and corporations in Ontario. In Ontario. And the legislature decided to remove any exceptions to the applicability, applicability of a two-year period. And even recently, and this is not in any of the factums, it's a very recent decision of the Ontario Court of Appeal, and I will give you the reference, Bank of Montreal versus Isken de Ruff, 2023 ONCA 528. And there the Court of Appeal said, confirmed that two-year limitation period even applies to fraudulent conveyances, actual fraud. And here, we're not even dealing with a a conveyance against fraud, so there's no allegation of fraud against the appellants. They're victims of the fraud. And I see there's a few minutes left, and I'd like to move on to uh, my set-off argument, unless there's any other questions on 12 and five. Thank you. Even if this court finds that the claims are out of time, the appellants are still entitled to set off. And the analysis proceeds as if the bankrupt were the defendant, not the trustee. And this is uh, in in the language of section 97. The law of set off, and I quote, "or compensation applies to all claims made against the the estate of the bankrupt and also to all actions instituted by the trustee for the recovery of debts due to the bankrupt in the same manner and to the same extent as if the bankrupt were plaintiff or defendant." And the respondent argues uh, that there's no equitable grounds uh, to base it off. But that's not the case. The Court of Appeal had it wrong when it said that the trial judge found that the appellants had unclean hands. And Justice Sawson said this at paragraph 69. At most, the trial judge criticized the appellants for being negligent. She never found that they had acted in fraud, deceit, unconscionability, or even bad faith. In fact, the trial judge, in her blue pencil analysis for severance, found that they were entitled to their principle. The debt is owing. And it's that paragraph 520, I'll read it for the court. Prohibiting the defendants from recovering any principal loan would be unduly harsh. That is not, however, the outcome of the finding that notional severance is appropriate in this case. The defendants each submitted claims of bankruptcy for their outstanding loans when Golden Oaks went to receivership. The company's debts far exceed assets, and the defendants will not recover entire amounts of their loans. However, they will recover the same proportion as other unsecured creditors. I'm unable to conclude that this is unjust in these circumstances. So Justice Garmory already found that a principal was owed, but they would obtain it in the bankruptcy. And as I've mentioned, she's already cured the contracts of illegality. She not only struck out the usurious portion of the interest, she struck out or severed interest altogether, which was the harsher one of the methods. And by doing so, she, she made the contracts legal. And the authority for that is Justice Arbor in Transport North American. And that's at paragraph 27. And Justice Arbor, and I paraphrase, says that when you use the blue pencil approach, you excise the illegal portion, and what remains is the legal portion of the contract. So what was therefore left before the court were appellants holding contracts that are no longer illegal with the principal owing as of the bankruptcy, predated the bankruptcy. And Justice Garmy would have applied set-off were it not for, bank, uh, for bankruptcy context consideration. She said she doesn't want to elevate the appellant's claims over those of other creditors. That's an error of law. If the debts predate the bankruptcy, the interest of other creditors is not a relevant factor. And my friends refer to Sugarman. But Sugarman, uh, and this is a Justice Charon uh, decision when she was on the Court of Appeal in 1999, was dealing with a claim for, for a debt that post the bankruptcy. And of course, in that context, the interest of other creditors would. But it can't be so if the debt existed beforehand, because then the, the trustee would be inheriting greater rights than those of the bankrupt. And the inequities about the appellants maybe receiving an advantage over creditors has already been addressed by this court, and that's in Husky Oil, and that's uh, Justice Gontier. And he explains section 97.3, he, he says, in the bankruptcy context, the law of set-off allows a debtor of a bankrupt who is also a creditor of the bankrupt to refrain from paying the full debt owing to the estate, since it may be the estate will only fulfill a portion, if that, of the bankrupt's debt. Consequently. In this limited sense, the party claiming set-off has Parliament's blessing for the reordering of his priority in bankruptcy. Oh, Mr. No, go ahead.
3: Go ahead, go ahead. So, Mr. Dehu, that part has been settled, uh, the, the fact that somebody in, uh, benefiting from a set-off, uh, even of course it is an advantage over the other creditors, but it has been uh, settled uh, with the legislation. But what about the finding that uh, your client did not have clean hands?
8: But there is no such finding. And that's, Justice uh, Sawson said that because they were perhaps negligent investor, they should have known better that uh, they have unclean hands. But that's not unclean hands. They were victims of this Ponzi scheme. That's the finding.
5: Can I I ask you, to the extent that this is, uh, uh, we're looking at the equities and whether they're clean hands, uh, the Court of Appeal looked at them in bulk. As overall, yes. was there any requirement to look at the individual contracts? I'm just looking at some of the affidavits that uh, you filed.
8: <laughs> That's an interesting question. And I would say that all the appellants for the user's interest um, appeal have clean hands. They're all victims of the Ponzi scheme. And these are the ones that are claiming set off for the usurer's interest. And none of the findings in the affidavit, none of the uh, testimony in the affidavits has been cross examined or put into question. Justice Garmory simply said they should have known better. Well, unfortunately, mm-hmm. they didn't. And I'd like to conclude with Thank you. Yes. They
4: were the unknowing facilitators of the Ponzi scheme, right? They didn't intend, but they were basically, uh, I mean, to use a colloquialism, they were greedy. They were taking, uh, <laughs> loaning money on promissory notes at very, very high rates. So that seems to me to be an equity uh, that uh, in asking for set off, that uh, you're entering into a can- contract that any reasonable person would know is too good to be true. And if you want to get, get uh, uh participate in such a contract, don't come to a court of equity and say it's only fair that I be allowed to set off uh, the, the amounts I would otherwise have to pay into the estate for amounts owing to me. Is that
8: unaware that it was usurious interest? It's it's only usurious when you extrapolate over the twelve-month period under Section three three forty-seven. That's how interest
2: is calculated per annum.
8: Understood, but that was unaware. That's (laughs) right. You couldn't. Oh, I I just wanted to conclude on one last point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mr. Jamal said that uh, public policy uh, should come into consideration when applying Section twelve, and our submission is that it doesn't. The legislature has already spoken. This is the law, and public interest consideration can't undo it. Thank Thank you very much, Mr. Chetan.
9: Good morning, justices, Chief Justice. Justices, may it please the court, um, I will be, I'll address the limitations defense and my co-counsel, Mr. Barrasso, will address the uh, set-off and, and perhaps other issues depending on availability, time availability. The main issue that's raised by this appeal is when will the knowledge of the sole directing mind of a corporation be attributed to the corporation for purposes of the discoverability of a claim under the Limitations Act of Ontario. And the appellants in this case seek to attribute Lacasse's knowledge of the fraudulent Ponzi scheme that he orchestrated. They want to to attribute it to Golden Oaks and, by extension, to the trustee to have the unjust enrichment claims barred um, as a result of the passage of time, but in order to retain the illegal interest and commission payments they received at the expense of Golden Oaks legitimate creditors. And as the courts below noted, that would be a perverse outcome in the circumstances of this case. The appellants seek to attribute Lacasse's knowledge to the trustee ultimately on three bases: One is through section 12 of the Limitations Act. The second is common law agency principles and the third is the corporate attribution doctrine. Now I'd like to remind the court of uh, a few factual findings made by the trial judge that are entitled to deference. My friend talks about the, the fact that the appellants are victims, and I acknowledge that there's sympathy for people that have been conned into participating in a Ponzi scheme. But contextually, it's important to remember that the trial judge found that the appellants were aware that the loans were at illegal rates of interest and that they failed to conduct any meaningful due diligence before they made the loans because the returns were simply too good to be true. In addition, in the year preceding the collapse of Golden Oaks, more than 90% of Golden Oaks receipts were from short-term loans. So this represents the source of the payments to the appellants that the trustee is trying to recover for the benefit of creditors generally. And in the last 10 months of Golden Oaks operations, Lacasse paid himself or withdrew approximately $1 million from the company before the Ponzi scheme collapsed. Now with regard to the limitation defense, I have three points that I would like to make. First, that the plain language of Section 12 does not apply to impute Lacasse's knowledge to the trustee. Second, that common law agency principles also do not apply to impute Lacasse's knowledge to Golden Oaks in circumstances where Lacasse, the agent, is guilty of fraud or malfeasance. And third, courts retain a discretion even in the case of a one-person corporation, not to apply the corporate attribution doctrine in circumstances where it would not be in the public interest to do so. Starting with section 12 of the Limitations Act, my friend takes the position at paragraph 33 of his factum that section 12 is determinative of the appeal. As they put it, the analysis of the limitation defense should have begun and ended with section 12. So in other words, they say by the combined application of 12.1 and 12.2, the trustee is to be imputed with Lacasa's knowledge of the matters in 5.1a.
3: Because they say also, Mr. Chaitan, that uh, here it is, the trustee, when uh, it took uh, his lawsuit, step in the shoes of the bankrupt.
9: And in stepping in the shoes of the bankrupt, it mean it acquires the yeah, Iverture so section 71 of yeah, the Yeah,
3: and we have... Uh, Unanimous jurisprudence to the effect that the trustee cannot have more rights Than the bankrupt company
9: correct, and this is not a question of having more rights It's a question of interpreting section 12 and who is the one that commenced the action and section 12 one is section 12 contemplates two different circumstances and if I could ask you to Turn up uh, section 12 at tab one of the compendium and it's on the, the second page starting with successors in twelve you'll see there that it begins with for the purposes of 5 a and then i emphasize in the case of a proceeding commenced by a person claiming through a predecessor in right title been interest that's the trustee the trustee is the successor Golden Oaks for purposes of section 12. And then if you turn the page and you look at 12.2 dealing with principal and agent, it begins again for the purpose of 5.1a in the case of a proceeding commenced by a principal, if the agent has a duty to uh, communicate the information. So they are two separate and distinct circumstances. There is, uh, in my submission, no evidence of a legislative intent to be able to combine uh, subsection 1 and 2 in a a proceeding. And quite frankly, um, had the legislature intended that you could impute an agent's knowledge to a successor rather than just to the principal, it could have easily said so, and it didn't. The only section that applies in my respectful submission is 12 sub one, and 12 sub one says nothing about how or when when Golden Oaks acquired knowledge of the claim.
3: And what, we do, what do we do with section 12 three? Because they seem to treat the predecessor or the judge on the same foot.
9: I, I think it's just saying that in respect of each of those mm-hmm separate situations you have to determine their knowledge based on whether a reasonable person in those circumstances would have uh, obtained the knowledge i don't i don't see section sub three as allowing for a combination of Uh sub one and sub two
2: is is the role of a corporate
9: officer
2: vis-a-vis the corporation, really one of principle and agency?
9: There is some uh, certainly English case law that I read in in connection with this matter that suggested as a general rule a a director would be considered an agent of the corporation. So it's um, obviously if they're acting beyond the scope of their authority that wouldn't be the case. And one might ask, well, are they acting beyond, was, was Lacasse acting beyond the scope of his authority in this case where he's perpetrating a fraudulent Ponzi scheme? And um, you know, I think to be fair, the business started off as a legitimate business, but it very quickly devolved into a fraudulent Ponzi scheme. So if I may turn next to the second argument for attribution
4: You've got to get into some notion of attribution. The the statute doesn't answer the question. No. The statute poses the question. It doesn't answer it.
9: Correct. Okay. Except to the extent that if 12 12, uh, deals with it, but only part way, it only deals with the trustee having Golden Oaks knowledge. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that takes you to it having um, La Casa's knowledge. And that's where we have to now turn to
3: but they are Agency exercising control. the right of the company. The trustee is not exercising its own recourse. He, he stepping the, in the shoes of the company, right.
9: the debtor it, company. It, it, it has the claim of the company.
3: And the debtor company knew.
9: Well, that, I, I, with respect, I think that's the question. Oh, the debtor company? De- that
3: It only knew if,
9: if it was imputed with Lacoste's knowledge.
3: Mais Lacoste was the only person acting for that company.
9: Well, as far as I, I recall, Solomon and Solomon is still good law, and there's a separation of the corporation and its directing mind. And what Leifant and, and, and its progeny tell us is that we have to look at the circumstances and the policy for determining whether you impute the knowledge of the directing mind to the corporation. And so it's, 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 uh, it's fact-driven.
2: So in the case of... It's, it's of, interesting because it's fact-driven in giving effect to a legal fiction.
9: Yes, yeah, that's true. Uh, let, me, let me turn to the agency law principles. Um, and attribution of an agent's knowledge to the principle is, is not automatic. And um, we've included in our material pres- Professor Fridman's text on Canadian agency law which it can be found at tab four of our condensed brief. And and there, uh, Professor Friedman says that knowledge of an agent may, so it's permissive, may be attributed to the principal. And the rationale for the rule is there's a presumption that the agent will communicate his or her knowledge to the principal when the agent has an obligation to do so. But like every rule, there's exceptions to the rule. And one such exception to the rule is where the agent has been guilty of fraud or malfeasance. And in those cases, courts have recognized that it would be contrary to common sense to treat the agent's knowledge of his fraud or malfeasance as knowledge of the company. And the exception was succinctly stated by Justice Middleton and Cooper and Parsons, uh, which is reproduced at paragraph 49 of our factum. And there, he said, the rule that the knowledge of the agent his knowledge of the principle is not of universal application. And it does not apply where the agent is engaged in fraudulent course of conduct and disclosure would mean disclosure of his own fraud. And that statement I say is particularly apt to the circumstances of this case. Because in this case, Lacasse uses Golden Oaks to operate a fraudulent Ponzi scheme. And during its operation, he commits fraud And he breaches his fiduciary duty owed to uh, act honestly and in good faith in the best interests of the company by taking out of Golden Oaks a million three. And we've heard about a million of that is within the 10 months prior to its collapse. And he also burdened the company with debt it could never repay. And significantly in my submission Lacasse was the only one who could cause Golden Oaks to commence proceedings to recover the usurious interest and commission payments. But he was also the only one who would never do so, as it would expose his fraudulent Ponzi scheme that he orchestrated and profited from personally. In my submission, it would defy common sense to impute Lacasse's knowledge to Golden Oaks in the circumstances of this case on common law agency principles to start the limitation clock running prior to the trustees
2: appointment. I'm going to come back briefly to the point I made earlier. Um, I mean, is it really proper to conceive of the relationship between a corporate officer who is the guiding mind of a corporation and the legal fiction of the corporation, the artificial person as being a principal and agent relationship, principal and agent relationship is to me characterised by something like uh, Apple Computer using someone in New York City to sell its um, devices, and the uh, person who is selling the devices becomes aware they are defective. But you know, do they tell this to headquarters? But you see, the company is not a thing. It is. It is not a sentient being it cannot become informed of anything in the way that you can uh, an agent can inform a principal because it uh, the agency in principle assumes that there are individuals who are the guiding minds the guiding mind there is no guiding mind for the corporation other than its than its officers i mean it just collapses it, it, uh, anyway it's a d- well, final I... question but it,
9: it seems to me that it just doesn't fit just, uh, Justice Rowe, I, um, I, I grappled with that as well as, as in you know, preparing for this matter, and uh, I can tell you that um, I know my friend relies on Equinav under the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, even though that dealt with Subsection 2, the equivalent of our Subsection uh, 2 in, in Section 12. And um, all of the cases that we were able to find in relation to the agency and principle uh, section in the Limitations Act all dealt with traditional principal agent relationships as you've described. There was none that we came across that actually involved a director being seen as the agent of the corporation. And we even went so far as to look at Hansard's and, and, and uh, commission reports. There was nothing that we could find that could help explain why um, section, subsection two is worded the way it is.
4: Principles of agency subsume the law of corporate attribution, and it can't be the case that an analysis under agency principles, if it's even applicable, could lead to a different result than the ordinary law of corporate attribution. It should be exactly the same, and in my
9: submission, it is the same. You get to the very same result. And so let me then turn to corporate attribution. And uh, it comes into play, as we know, when a rule or a statute requires a corporation's state of mind or knowledge uh, to be determined. And it has to be analyzed for the particular purpose or defense at issue. And in this case, the purpose is to invoke a limitations defense. And the court, this court uh, said in, in De Jong, that even where the minimum requirements for the application of the corporate attribution doctrine apply, as in this case, um, the court still retain a discretion not to apply the doctrine where it would not be in the public interest to do so. My friend at paragraph one of his factum concedes that the corporate attribution rule applies to a one-person corporation such as this. However, he argues that in the case of a one-person company, there is no or should not be any discretion to refrain from applying the doctrine. And whether the doctrine applies in the case of the one-person corporation was the very question left open by this court in Livent. The
3: I Sir Chetan, and you'll correct me, you mentioned the word defenses. That doctrine has been applied when a corporation does not want to be held liable because of the act of its directing mind. So it is a defense that a corporation can raise. But here that so-called defense is not raised by the corporation. It is raised by uh, the person who is sued by the corporation.
9: Um,
3: It's a different context than the context.
9: It's a a different context, but, but for purposes of a defense that is being made to a claim by the corporation, they seek to invoke The doctrine, just like in live vent, where the auditors. I understand, but
3: this is a corporation attribution doctrine, and it has always been analyzed when a corporation says, Yeah, my directing mind committed a fraud, but I'm not liable for that because the fraud was only in the interest of that person, and it did not benefit to me as a corporation.
9: I, I see it a little bit different when it comes, I, to me this is more like akin to Live because you have a third party who is being sued, in that case the auditor, mm-hmm. in this case the recipients of the usurious interest, and they are both, in both cases, seeking to impute mm-hmm. the knowledge of the directing mind on the corporation for purposes of a defense. In the case of Live Event it was to be able to raise the illegality defense. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, Justice uh, Cote, okay.
3: they apply it in both okay. cases.
9: And so, as I was saying, whether disc- the discretion exists in one-person corporation was left open by this court in Liveant, and, and in doing so, they cited three cases: the Stone and Rolls, Belta of the UK Supreme Court, as well as the decision of this court in the Numbered Company and Bank of Montreal. And those day, those cases all predate the decision of the UK Supreme Court in Singularis, um, and which rejected as a rule of law that the dishonesty of the directing mind must necessarily, um, in, in case of a one com, uh, one-person company, must necessarily be attributed to the company whatever the context and purpose of the attribution. And in Singularis, which can be found at tab nine of our uh, compendium. Lady Hale, for a unanimous court, observed that Stone and Rolls, which was the, I guess, the seminal decision dealing with one, man, one person corporations, uh, she says that Stone and Rolls has prompted much debate and criticism. And at paragraph 32, she quotes from the judgment of Lord Newberger in Belta, where he said in relation to stone and rules that the time has come in my view for us to hold that the decision in stone and rules should as lord denning put it graphically in relation to another case be put on the side in a pile and marked do not look at again now significantly um, at paragraph 34 After rejecting as a rule of law that you necessarily impute the dishonest knowledge or intention of the directing mind to a company in the case of a one-person company, Lady Hale goes on to uh, agree with the trial judge in that case that the answer to any question of attribution is always to be found in the context and the purpose for which attribution is sought. So it really doesn't matter whether all the directors knew or didn't know about the fraudulent intent or the focus now is on context and purpose. And, that's wh- and she says that in paragraph 34, starting in the first line, in my view, the judge was correct also to say that there is no principle of law that in any proceeding where the company is suing a third party for breach of a duty owed to it by that third party, The fraudulent conduct of a director is to be attributed to the company if it is a one-man company. In In her view, what emerged from Belta was that the answer to any question whether to attribute the knowledge of the fraudulent director to the company is always to be found in consideration of the context and purpose for which the attribution is relevant. And she goes on to say, I agree, and if that is the guiding principle, then Stone and Rolls can finally be laid to rest and that was the decision everyone relied on for the principle that you had to attribute knowledge in the case of a one person corporation so that is no longer the law and in our submission that statement of lady hale is really quite consistent with the approach this court has taken both in liveant and in deyoung in exercising the discretion not to apply the corporate attribution doctrine. Again, the context, if that's what we're looking at, context and purpose, the context of this case is a fraudulent Ponzi scheme perpetrated by Lacasse. He's the sole owner and directing mind of Golden Oaks, now a bankrupt company. And that scheme was fueled by Golden Oaks paying short-term lenders, including the appellants, illegal rates of return on their money which the trial judge found that the appellants knew were too good to be true. The appellants are seeking to retain their ill-gotten gains by the application of the corporate attribution doctrine to dismiss the trustees' actions as statute barred. Now, the Court of Appeal in this case concluded that in the circumstances of this case, it would not be in the public interest to impute Lacasse's knowledge to Golden Oaks for the purpose of barring the trustees' claims, as it would result in a perverse outcome for several reasons that are set out at paragraphs 57 to 59 of the decision. And these include that it would permit the appellants to benefit from their wrongdoing by retaining their illegal gains with civil impunity, Retention of the payments would undermine a fundamental purpose and policy of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, which is the fair and equitable distribution of assets among creditors. It would allow the appellants as victims to enlarge their recovery at the expense of other victims and other creditors of Golden Oaks. And it would deprive the trustee of a remedy to recover the impugned payments. And I would add to that list, a further factor, and that is it would shield those who commit or benefit from fraud by barring the claims before they could be asserted as a practical matter, which is what happened here. And that's what the trial judge found, because Lacasse being the sole person in control, it was he was the one who would determine whether an action would be commenced to remedy the wrong. And he was the last. Person who would ever do so.
3: Uh, will it have been possible to, for the trustee to take other recourses, like under ninety-five or under ninety-six of the, they, they, the, the,
9: the? The the proceeding was more than based on just enrichment. There was also a claim for preferences and transfers okay, at okay. undervalue, and those claims were dismissed at trial for.
3: Not not for, for uh, not for uh, limitation periods.
9: No. Okay. no, it was it was it was a pleadings yeah. Issue. Okay. Be one more minute, and then turn it over to my friend. But uh, in conclusion, um, we say that the court of appeal was correct to conclude that there is no principled basis to exclude the court's direction, discretion to not apply the corporate attribution doctrine in the case of a one-person corporation, and that the doctrine ought not to have been applied on the facts of this case. I want to leave you. Um, I. I, I not abandoning the alternative argument that was found by the trial judge uh, having to deal with the appropriateness. And uh, we rely on our factum. Uh, we agree, quite frankly, with uh, Justice Gomery's analysis that in this particular case, it was impossible for Golden Oaks to commence a proceeding within the two-year limitation period. And um, she specifically no- noted that our case and Rydell were, were different. In Rydell, Justice Van Randsberg recognized that there may well be an issue about appropriateness in circumstances where you have a, um, the wrongdoer who's the sole directing mind and is in control of um, the company as well as the prospect of any litigation. But it didn't have to be determined in that case because there were share, other shareholders who knew and they had the means by which to cause the company to, correct, to commence an action. So, she kind of acknowledged that that was an issue, but didn't have to deal with it on the facts I of that case.
3: I agree with Maître Daou when he says that uh, this appropriateness goes only to the legal capacity and not only a factual. But what,
9: what it, it deals with legal appropriateness, but the courts say that that, um, that doesn't apply to, to tactical reasons for not starting a lawsuit. So, you're aware of the lawsuit, but for whatever reason, you choose not to do so such as an appeal has been filed from a judgment. This has nothing to do with tactics. This has to do with ability Mm -hmm. to commence an action. It was impossible on the facts of this case. Those are my respectful submissions, so thank you. I'll turn it over to my friend.
10: morning, Justices. I'm going to speak in the limited time r- remaining to me about the issue of equitable set-off. And it has been put... A we'll contract point as well? Um, time permitting, okay. I'd be glad to. Um, the issue with equitable set-off, no one disputes that subsection 97.3 permits a preference to be awarded where set-off has been found but that's not the end of the analysis that's the beginning of the analysis first we must demonstrate that this is a case for equitable setoff and in our submissions the equities do not favor the recipients of usurious interest whatsoever keep in mind those judgments were based on an equitable remedy that their enrichment was unjust and then they turn around and say, accordingly, we rely on equity to set off our unjust enrichment. And let's not forget what the ultimate conclusion of that would be. They get to keep the money. That cannot be the correct outcome in these circumstances. And importantly, they don't come to the court with clean hands. And we cite in our factum a case called Strelson AG v Strelmax, where An equitable set-off claim was rejected because the wrongful conduct is at the heart of the claim of the set-off, and that's entirely on all fours with this circumstance. The wrongful conduct here is the receipt of the usurious interest. That's at the heart of their claim for set-off, something that is fundamentally wrongful and that is illegal. In those circumstances, it does not stand to reason that they can plead to a court of equity that they should be able to set that off. Now, there is a fair bit of commentary about whether or not one can consider the impact on other creditors. In our submission, they can, as one factor in assessing whether or not the equities favor the application of the set off. And in this case, in particular, It's important to look at the impact on others for the following reason. That usurious interest that they received, whose money was it? It was the remaining creditors because this was not an operating business. Its sole effort and focus was taking money from the new investors to give to the old investors. That's what's at the heart of a Ponzi scheme. And in these circumstances, the court must Assess the fact that the people who would be harmed and prejudiced by the application of the set off are the very people whose money is lining the pockets of the individuals who received the usurious interest.
4: The outside bankruptcy, set off, an equity pro- uh, prohibiting set off can be a multi party type of equity rather than, as against other creditors, rather than uh, just the party against whom set off his claim? Because what I'm concerned about is when, once you start saying, well, we look at all the other creditors, it sort of renders Parliament's direction in 97.3 a bit of a dead letter.
10: I, I think the answer to that, Justice, is that in the case of a Ponzi scheme, it is insolvent from the outset, and the only persons being impacted are those other new investors. So in those circumstances, as one element of the equitable set-off analysis we must ask where did the money come from Um, i see that i am now out of time you had requested that i speak about the illegal You can speak
0: about that for
10: one minute certainly so the contracts were illegal because they were perpetuating a ponzi scheme and the referral contracts at their heart were fantastic and ridiculous. They did not purport to be commercially reasonable transactions. And You will see when you look at her honours decision, one example of the referral agreements was that Mr. Scott would receive 8% of the actual investment. These were investors who were receiving themselves usurious interest and wanted to share the ability to enter into illegal contracts with other persons thus perpetuating the Ponzi scheme. And Her Honour was quite clear when she said, and I don't think it's objectionable, Ponzi, Ponzi schemes ought to be discouraged. Those are my submissions. Thank, thank,
0: thank you, you.
10: very much. Thank you. Ms.
1: Salmon.
11: Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. The Attorney General for Ontario submits that this court should expand upon the narrow criteria for the common law corporate attribution doctrine established in Canadian Dredge to account for its application to novel statutory contexts more generally. The Attorney General also submits that the contextual framework for corporate attribution established in the United Kingdom's jurisprudence, specifically the seminal case Meridian Global Funds and Securities Commission, provides a useful framework for this Court's consideration. Justices, the Aquino appellants have expressed the concern that Ontario has not explained why the criteria in Canadian dredge may be unduly restrictive for some novel context. As these appeals demonstrate, there are indeed circumstances in which a strict application of the Canadian dredge criteria ought not to apply as it would lead to a perverse or absurd result that do not accord with the purpose of the statutory regime. In Canadian Dredge, the issue was about the criminal liability of the corporation and the policy considerations that drove that analysis weighed in favor of imputing the corporation with the illegality or wrongdoing of its directing mind. There, the policy considerations flowed from the social purpose of holding a corporation responsible for the criminal acts of its employees where those acts are designed and carried out, at least in part, to benefit the corporation. In the civil context, the rule seeks to determine whether it is just to visit civil liability on a corporation. As set out by the court in enlivened, in civil cases, the rationale for the application of the doctrine fades away where it would not provide protection for any interest in the community or would not advantage society by advancing law and order. The common law corporate attribution doctrine should therefore be flexible enough to apply to various statutory contexts where no legislated attribution mechanism is available. It is respectfully submitted that a court considering the issue of corporate attribution in a novel statutory context should ask how the doctrine would best achieve the legislature's intent in enacting the relevant statutory provision. To answer this question, I submit that courts should look to the specific statutory provisions at issue and consider whose intent or knowledge ought to be attributed to the corporation to best achieve the provision's purpose. The application of the doctrine will therefore be specific to the statutory context in which it arises and must adhere to modern principles of statutory interpretation. The modern principle of statutory interpretation requires that the court read the words of an act in their entire context and in their grammatical and ordinary sense harmoniously with the scheme of the Act, the object of the Act, and the intention of Parliament. The goal of achieving a harmonious interpretation is the establishment of legislative intent. Therefore, the modern principle of statutory interpretation should be determinative when courts apply the corporate attribution doctrine in order to give effect to legislative intent, specifically, courts ought to first look at the legislative scheme for the applicable mechanisms for corporate attribution. If no legislative attribution mechanisms are available, then courts may apply the common law doctrine to determine the issue of a corporation's mental state, but must do so consistently with the text, context, and purpose of the statutory provision at issue. Our central submission on the application of Meridian is set out in paragraphs 24 to 29 of of our factum. Importantly, Lord Hoffman made clear that the key to any question of attribution is ultimately always to be found in considerations of text, context, and purpose. I respectfully submit that the framework in Meridian provides an instructive model For Ontario's proposed approach. Those are all my submissions, subject to the questions from the court. Thank
0: you very much, thank you. Natasha McParland.
12: Thank you Chief Justice and Justices. The Insolvency Institute of Canada intervenes in this case to urge clarification of the law of corporate attribution. We have two points. First, that the court should clarify that Canadian dredge does not provide an all-encompassing test for corporate attribution. Rather, dredge is best read as embracing a general common law rule of attributing a directing mind's knowledge and intent to the corporation, along with a policy-based defense in the criminal context, as observed by Justice Jamal. The lesson of dredge is thus that a corporation will usually be fixed with the knowledge and intent of its directing mind, unless the specific legal context requires an exception. Secondly, in our view, the court should clarify its post dredge decisions regarding how a court may appropriately find an exception to the general rule of attribution. In the IIC's view, the best course is to focus on the context and purpose of the specific rule at issue focus on the specific rule at issue and not simply broad legislative purposes is particularly important in the context of a complex legislative scheme like Canada's insolvency regime. That is because Canada's insolvency regime regime does not pursue any single purpose at all cost, but instead seeks to carefully balance a multitude of competing interests, all while prioritizing fairness, predictability, and efficiency. I pause for a moment to address uh, Justice Cote's questions on the dividend issue. We would suggest that question for, we would suggest reserving that question for a future case that squarely raises the issue. Under section 96, there would need to be evidence that the dividend was in fact a transaction at undervalue, but we don't believe that the attribution question here turns on the form of impugned transfer at undervalue. I welcome the corp's questions, but absent questions, I'll briefly expand on our second point in the context of section 96 of the BIA. I will elaborate on the importance of the specific legal context of the transferred undervalue in section 96, which is discussed at pages 7 to 10 of our factum. With respect to the attribution analysis, the key point from the IIC's perspective is that section 96 concerns fraud occasioned on creditors, not the debtor, even if the court debtor corporation has been concurrently defrauded by its directing mind, that fact is simply irrelevant for the purpose of section 96, which focuses only on whether the debtor corporation has defrauded the creditor. The remedy under section 96 is ultimately directed at the transferee. It is the transferee who must pay the difference in value to the estate. So under section 96, the debtor does not suffer any deleterious consequences as a result of applying the general rule from dredge that the directing mind's fraudulent conduct will be attributed to the corporation. This result is markedly different from this court's cases in Dredge and Livent. In Dredge, the court was concerned about the deleterious impacts of criminally sanctioning a corporation based on the directing mind's conduct. In Livent, the court was concerned that the attribution of the directing mind's fraudulent intent would gut the very purpose of the audit. As a result, in both cases, relying on the specific legal context, the court crafted exceptions to the general rule in dredge. There is no need to do so here. To the contrary, creating an exception to the general rule would turn section 96 upside down by allowing a fraudster to get the benefit of their own conduct. I pause to note that I'm deliberately using the word exception versus dredge. Dredge was defense, sorry, as opposed to the word defense. Dredge used the word defense because the issue arose in the criminal context. But as this case shows, the issue may arise in many different contexts and may be um, invoked by different parties. So we prefer the use of the word exception. We are also of the view that the analysis should focus on the context and purpose of the specific rule at issue. Thus, the IIC urges a focus on Section 96 seen in the context of the BIA as a whole we would urge the court not to simply look at the broader purposes of the BIA or Canadian insolvency law to the exclusion of a particular legal rule before it. We say this because as this court has noted, complex legislation may have multiple purposes which are balanced against each other in a carefully calibrated scheme. And we expand on this point at paragraphs 27 to 31 of our factum. I will conclude by emphasizing that dredge is best read as setting out a general rule for imputing to a corporation the intention of its directing mind unless a policy-based exception that reflects the specific legal rule can be made out. And in the context of section 96, courts should consider whether attributing intent to the corporation would achieve the purpose of section 96, redress to the creditors. Unless you have any further questions, those are my submissions.
0: Thank you very much. Mr. Kirstianos.
1: <clears throat> Thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, quickly, uh, if, we could, uh, if you could turn to Tab 17 of our condensed book. Um, this was an article written by Professor Wood uh, after the Court of Appeal rendered its decision. And it's an issue that was never raised by either the um, applicant, uh, sorry, the trustee or the monitor. So what this reflects is if, you, if a court is inclined to consider this point, it is de novo review. So that just leave it out there. But Professor Wood made the, com- the following comment, and this is something that my friends here have also alluded to. They said, however, the, um, they said the important insight is that the corporate attribution principle is inappropriate in the context of section 96 of the BA because the corporation is not prejudiced. By Section 96 remedy. With all due respect, that is demonstrably false. Section 96 1B, 2B of the BA is premised expressly on a finding of fraudulent intent by the corporate debtor as against the third party creditors. So in the case at Barr, it's Bonfield and Formicon that have been adjudged as having that fraudulent intent, not any of the uh, appellants. And if you flip over to tab 18 of our condensed book, this is um, a very new decision that came out from the Court of Appeals. A five-member panel, uh, per Justice Feldman, and this looked on. Uh, this was in the provincial context uh, of the Fraudulent conveyances Act, but Justice Feldman, before the court, said it, said it stated as follows. Quote, while some courts have ordered a reconveyance of the property that was the subject of the impugned transaction back to the transfer, in fact, the section does not afford that remedy. Because the fraudulent conveyance is void only as against creditors or others, the case law has made it clear that the transaction remains valid as between the transfer and the transferee. So, in this context, and assuming that uh, the BIA is similar to the FCI, which I think uh, fraudulent conveyance, which I think it is, So if the transferees, in this case the the previous, if they were to be ordered to pay money to the state of the bankrupt or to the the monitor, then that will create new liability uh, as opposed to bond field. So they're in no better position. There is direct prejudice there. So very briefly now, I also want to... My friends also focus on the point that Well, how can it be where uh, an individual who's implicated in a fraud against the company can use that as a defense, the the corporate attribution doctrine? That should not be controversial at all. And in New York, they have a doctrine called the adverse interest exception. And if you can turn to uh, tab 14, this is a decision rendered by the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. And this is what they stated. Under the exception, that's the uh, adverse interest exception, management, management misconduct will not be imputed to the corporation if the corporation acted entirely in his own interest and adversely to the interest of the corporation. That's
0: If the officer.
1: Correct. Management will not be imputed to the corporation if the officer acted entirely in his own interest. Correct. And then and they go on, the theory is that when an agent is engaged in a scheme to defraud his principal, either for his own benefit or that of a third person, he cannot be presumed to have disclosed that which would expose and defeat his fraudulent purpose. That makes eminent sense. Okay, so in the case at Barr, the allegations were that John Aquino was a rogue, that, he was, that his father, Ralph Aquino, who was, if you will, the family patriarch, Created this company and his brother Stephen Aquino, uh, that they were not aware of the false invoicing scheme. And then, of course, going back to uh, and then there's another New York decision. Again, this is New York law, but it is helpful. This is the Kirchner decision, which came out of the New York Court of Appeals. And they, and they looked at public policy here, and they and they and if you look at it, this is what they said. We are not persuaded, however, that the equities are are quite so obvious. In particular, why should the interests of innocent stakeholders of corporate fraudsters, so in this case the analogous would be the creditors of Bonfield and Formicon, trump those of innocent stakeholders of the outside professionals who are the defendants in this case. Now, in this case, so you have a contest between the privies versus uh, these uh, creditors. Well. Imagine for a second that these privies were large publicly traded corporations. You're going to have stakeholders who are going to be completely innocent. They're going to be compromised from an expansion uh, from the approach that they advocate. And then again, last but not least, uh, I just quickly want to discuss uh, the UK su- uh, Supreme Court decision. in uh, One in minute. Built- Sorry? In one minute. One, okay, I, I, don't, I don't want to take your time. Lord Sumption made a, a point on behalf, no, it was the four judgments, but he stated, um, in an action for breach of duty against the directors, there cannot be attributed to the company a fraud, which is being practiced against it by its agent. Fundamental. And really, that's what we have here. And that's what the corporate attribution says. Whenever you have a director who has totally abandoned the company that he or she purports to serve, you simply cannot attribute their state of mind, their intentionality to the corporate principle. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: Monsieur Daou.
8: Merci, Monsieur Juge en Chef. I have uh, just a few points in reply. I know we're all eager to go uh, for lunch. I'd like to re- reiterate, we're not disputing that we need to use attribution. But our position remains that the primary rules are sufficient, and the reason why is that there's no exception here that can displace that, uh, that their application. There's no fraud on the corporation. And this is a finding of the trial judge. And this is a paragraph 412. She, in fact, found that there was a benefit to the corporation from the scheme. Of the 60 million that was, um, uh, 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 ...raised, (laughs) thank you Justice Um, uh, uh, Cote. 7 million was used to pay off investors, 1.3 million went to Mr. Lacasse's salary, but the rest was to buy properties, marketing, operations. So, yes, it it devolved into a Ponzi scheme, but the fraud was really committed on third parties, the investors, who thought they were investing in a successful uh, project. And this is where you distinguish all the other cases that my friend cited, where the agent is performing fraud on the corporation. Here, uh, fraud is on third parties, none of which owe a duty of care and none of whom uh, are owed a duty of care. And yes, Lady Hale was correct in singularis. She resumed the the rule to, it's all about context and purpose. And I agree, but the context and purpose in this case is limitations, not bankruptcy. And we can't invoke public policy to displace statute. The public policy concerns have already been enshrined by the legislature. And last point on unclean hands. That analysis has already been performed by the trial judge and hasn't been appealed. She found that Instead of striking or severing their contracts ab initio, which would have been the case had they had unclean hands, say for loan sharking or other improper contracts, she decided to use a less harsh approach of using blue pencil. It was the second most harsh, but not the most. And this finding hasn't been uh, disturbed on appeal. And in fact, the trial judge found it would be unduly harsh to deprive the appellants of their principal, And it would be doubly penalizing them now to uh, um, stop them from uh, availing themselves of set-off. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Merci.
0: Your submissions, the court will take the case on their advisement. Thank you very much.